Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery, from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories, and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts, or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Do you ever have so much to say about something that you don't even know where to start? Maybe it's something that you're passionate about, or an expert at, or even confused by. But if someone brings it up, you might get this sort of excited feeling and be like, well, and then launch into a whole thing. That's how I feel about witches. And I mean all witches. Good ones, bad ones, fictional ones, real ones, witches of all genders and backgrounds, historical witches, and witches that are living today. But what is a witch, you might ask? Well, a witch can be so many things that we at Unspookable thought it would be the best to bring you a two-part episode to try and cover as many stories and ideas as possible. In this first part, we'll talk about before witches were even called witches, and the wide variety of cultural practices that could have influenced our current understanding of what a witch can be. Hang on to your pointy hats, friends. We've got a lot to talk about. I'm Elise Parisian, and this is part one of a very witchy Unspookable. What I think of when I hear the word witches, I think of someone very old with a long nose, a broomstick, a black cat in a very big hat with a point. What I think of when I hear the word witch is I think about like witches and wi- wizards like Harry Potter or like th- like a bunch of like books and like I think of like myself kind of like as a witch or like or like I feel like so many people can be witches and wizards. It also is a witch because if they have a broomstick, they might be put it between their legs and they might float above and ride around in the sky. And they also might do spells. Like when I think of witches, I think of all of the old stories and episodes like Bloody Mary and how... Like, witches are just, like, people who made medicine. And then how somehow people started saying that they were evil. And somehow out of the words evil, they created a broomstick to ride on. In a forest in Germany, three women gather around an open fire. Steam rises from the liquid bubbling over it as they add more ingredients to a broth that will be used to cure cold throughout winter. In a city in Mexico, a woman is creating a charm from stone and metal to bring good energy to a family member who's going on a long journey. In a town in Nigeria, a man casts palm nuts that fell in different patterns as another looks on, reading the patterns for advice on his future. Now, you tell me, 
are these people all witches? Isn't it exciting how many things we get to talk about on this show that have mysterious beginnings? Stories or ideas that have existed for so long, since before anyone was writing things down, that they may have been around since the first humans? In many ways, this is true of witches. People with magical abilities of different kinds have existed in every culture, in every language, and on every continent of the world for as long as there have been humans. Okay, fine, maybe there are no witches in Antarctica, but there could be. Some types of witchcraft in some traditions or countries have specific names and characteristics, and some don't. And just like with many things that we talk about on Unspookable, there are many misunderstandings both within and between cultures that give certain witches a bad name. We will try to unpack a lot of that between part one and part two of this episode. But first, we will start with the European or Western origins of the witch figure. We know the English word witch in the European tradition comes from the Old English wicca, meaning a male sorcerer, and witche, meaning a female sorcerer. But how did Wicca come to mean what it does? We don't really know. Scholars aren't sure about what led to these words. They could have come from very, very early, like 3000 BC early, European words for divide or separate and profit. Or some scholars think that the WI beginning maybe had to do with the origins of the word wise and not Wicca at all. Eventually, Wicca came to mean someone who follows the Wiccan religion, whether male or female. A couple thousand years later, the word witche was used as a gender-neutral term. It wasn't until the 1500s that the T was added and we got the word witch, around the same time that it started being used only for women. The 1500s in Europe brought about a time of turmoil and questioning that would define the word witch as a bad word for centuries to come. But what about before that? If we think about a witch as someone who practices witchcraft, and we think of witchcraft as the practice of magical skills or abilities, then maybe thousands of years ago, a person who delivered babies was a witch, or a person who gave you tea to help with your stomach ache was a witch, or a person who seemed like they knew the patterns and habits of animals was a witch. You might say, but how is that magic? Curing a stomachache isn't magic, and plenty of people know about delivering babies, or how animals live. Okay, but then that leads us to questions about knowing and knowledge. Today, many people might say, you have to be a doctor to deliver a baby. You have to have gone to medical school and learned for years and years, and you have to work in a hospital. But what about thousands of years ago, when knowledge didn't exist that way? Because books didn't exist, and classrooms didn't exist and even hospitals didn't exist. Then, if a woman who lived in your village, who knew just what to mix up to make your fever go down, or just what to try so that a baby could be born safely, wouldn't that seem a little bit like magic? At the very least, a woman like this would seem very wise. At this point in European history, many people referred to their local healer as a wise woman, or a wise man if that was the case and they were visited as a source of knowledge about many aspects of human life. Many scholars argue that the origins of the modern idea of the witch began with these healers, or religious leaders and other figures perceived to have connections to ancient gods or goddesses, or understanding of rituals and spells to try to make human life better. Asking for a bountiful harvest so that there's enough food, 
or burying someone in a specific way so that they have a good afterlife, or even wishing that someone would fall in love with you. These are all parts of the human experience that long ago, we may have asked witches to help with, whether or not we called them witches. But of course, when there are people that seem to have that kind of power to do good, they can also be blamed when bad things happen. A very early record of a witch being accused of crimes comes from ancient Greece, around 323 BC. A woman named Theoris in Athens was a pharmacus, a person who created drugs and potions for healing. This was considered a type of magic, and not a crime in and of itself. But using those powers to harm definitely was. Theoris was accused of poisoning someone, although it's not clear from the record exactly who that was or what the circumstances were, she was put on trial and executed. Maybe she did poison someone on purpose. Maybe she made a mistake when she was trying to cure them. Or maybe none of it happened at all. Most of Theoris's story that was recorded and survived was written down by the men who accused her and killed her. We will never know her side of the story. Ancient Romans had laws against black magic, an offense punishable by death. There were known witches, astrologers, wizards, healers, and all kinds of magically connected people in Roman society. But it's hard to tell in some cases to what degree they were accepted. Some Roman emperors employed these people in their courts. But the threat of one of these powerful people having evil intentions and blighting crops or spreading disease was ever-present. Around the 3rd century BC, laws came into existence that advocated for a witch whose enchantments resulted in someone's death to be burned at the stake. While this may not be the first instance of witches being threatened with death by fire, it may be one of the first that was written down in law. While they may have also been worried about the effects of magic in the wrong hands, Ancient Greeks and Romans both had versions of what is known as a curse tablet. The tablet is a thin piece of lead that has a curse scratched into its surface in tiny letters. It was often buried underground, sometimes in a grave or near someone's house, or nailed to the wall of a temple. Often these tablets ask for the assistance of lesser gods, like Pluto, Hecate, or Charon, all of whom had a connection to the border between life and death. Tablets that have been discovered by archaeologists and are now in museums say things like, May he who carried off Vilbia from me become liquid as the water. And, I curse Tritia Maria and her life and mind and memory and liver and lungs mixed up together. Some cursed tablets found aren't even in Greek or Latin or any known language at all. This text is referred to as Voces Mystici, Words that were perhaps believed to be the language of demons. Because yeah, some people were very interested in demons. One particularly scary figure in the folklore of this time is called a Strix. A Strix is a large predatory bird, probably like what we know as an owl or a hawk, that is a symbol of evil. Some people came to believe these birds were witches and that they could transform from human to bird, and wanted to kidnap children, and use them for spells, or even eat them. So witchcraft and witches had a whole range of stories and ideas that went along with them. 
Witches and other magical people were both part of the fabric of society and part of mythology or fictional stories. Today, we might have the opinion that a certain politician or doctor or architect is good or bad at their job. We also might see this person's actions in their job as good or bad. These roles in society don't automatically mean someone is bad or evil, and it used to be the same with witches. They weren't automatically seen as scary or wicked. It was what they did with their power that mattered, and people had a wide range of opinions about them. Perhaps the same as we do today. Before European Christianity, many cultures practiced polytheism, or the belief in multiple gods or goddesses. Do you remember the word pagan? We've used it on Unspookable before. It was connected to a belief in many gods or goddesses, especially to a worship of and reverence for nature and the natural world. As Christianity became more popular and some people discouraged the belief in multiple gods, pagan was often used as a negative word associated with peasants and began to be thought of as uncivilized. If we look at some of the people that practiced religions with more than one deity, we find a lot of them include figures that were connected to spells, magic, or sorcery. In Greece, Hecate was a lesser goddess, but a powerful one. And those that worshipped her did so sometimes to the point of excluding most other gods. Hecate was associated with crossroads, entryways, magic, witchcraft, ghosts, sorcery, and knowledge of herbs and plants. There was also the goddess Circe, an enchantress with vast knowledge of herbs and potions. She was said to carry a staff that could turn people who displeased her into animals. And of course, it wasn't just Europeans who had examples of these powerful women in their mythology and religion. The Yoruba people in present-day Nigeria and regions of West Africa have spirits called Orishas. Aya is Orisha of the forest, an expert in herbal healing, and patron of the forest and the animals. Oya is Orisha of divination, or telling the future. In Chinese mythology, and in the Taoist religion, a goddess called Ju Tian Shuan Nu, also called the Dark Lady, or the Mysterious Lady of the Nine Heavens, was associated with alchemy, the transformation of matter, divination, and other forms of magic. She was also associated with both war and love. It's hard to pin down exactly what thoughts about witches originated when. The stories that survive as history and come to be viewed by many as fact are usually written by the people in power, and in the case of war or conflict, by the people who win. A lot of what we think about the earliest witches may be speculation, but there have definitely been times even during early Christianity, when someone could be a witch, or a wise woman or healer, or whatever they were called, and still exist peacefully in a Christian village or town. A lot of the earliest documents on Christianity, dating from say between 500 and 1200, specifically said that witches, the type that were creatures of the devil and cast dark magic, did not exist. In 643, a set of laws called the Lombard Code included this sentence. Let nobody presume to kill a foreign-serving maid or a female slave as a witch, for it is not possible nor ought to be believed by Christian minds. 
In the days before Christianity had a firm hold on Europe, and before Europe took a firm hold on the rest of the world through colonization, it almost seemed like ideas about healing magic, or witchcraft, could evolve with the times. Which is not to say that things were peaceful, of course. Even if the female slave mentioned above wasn't accused of witchcraft, she was still living as an enslaved person. Coexistence where everyone had basic human rights was hardly widespread. But what shifted for witches? Why do some scholars tend to link Christianity with negativity towards magic or witches, even good healing ones? And why are most of the stories we know today about witches who were killed instead of witches who were leaders or healers or brave, powerful, good women? Have you ever heard of a really wicked book called the Malleus Maleficarum? No, it's not a book of spells. Kind of the opposite, actually even though it sounds like it could be. First published in 1487 in Germany, the Malleus Maleficarum was a treatise on witches written by men who were leaders in the branch of Christianity known as Catholicism. It's important to note that men wrote, published, and circulated this information because it was specifically their intention to point out that women were the ones who were more susceptible to witchcraft, to the influences of the devil, and other things they deemed unchristian. So much for possible coexistence, right? This document elevated magic, sorcery, and witchcraft of any kind, not just black magic, to heresy. Heresy is anything that goes against the rules of a religion. In this case, a branch of Christianity. 1,000 years prior, in the early days of Christianity, it had been heresy to believe in witchcraft. But now... This book said witchcraft itself was the heresy. What changed? Some historians connect this shift to the changing opinions about science and medicine in Europe during the period known as the Renaissance. Some of us are taught in Western education that the Renaissance in Europe led to advancements in art, science, math, philosophy, pretty much every subject you can think of, and that it was a great time in European history. A lot of wonderful learning did happen that benefited many people, but this time period also saw a rise in the privatization of knowledge. A what, you might say? But bear with me. Privatization means something becomes private. As in, it's no longer for everyone. So, in the case of knowledge, this means that people decided that schools and universities, often that cost money, were the real places where the best knowledge was taught and learned. So instead of giving credit to the women in their kitchens who had been creating cures for illnesses forever, now medicine was starting to become something you were supposed to study and practice, and medicines made over an open fire were more like spells or witchcraft. None of this is to say that modern medicine and medical schools are not great things. But ask yourself... Whose knowledge is considered acceptable? And whose is considered heresy? And why? The 15 to 1700s in Europe were full of flurries of witch panic that led to the execution of many people. Books like the Maleficarum detailed all of the acts that could be considered witchcraft and ways to accuse and torture supposed witches to get a confession. Witch trials became a popular and often public spectacle where the accused fate was decided. 
the panic also made its way to European colonies in the United States, where some of the most famous witch trials of all time took place. Perhaps you've heard of a little town called Salem. There's so much more to talk about, but you'll have to wait for part two, where we'll start around the time of the Salem witch trials and get to some of the ways that witchcraft is being used today all over the world. All of that and more next time on Unspookable. Thanks for listening to Unspookable. I'm your host, Elise Parisian. This episode was written by Eleanor Riley Condit, produced and edited by Nate Dufort. Our theme song and additional music composed by Jesse Case. Our logo was created by Natalie Kewen, with episode artwork by Sarah Stitches. Special thanks this week to our guests Blythe, Al, and Olivia. If you enjoy the show, make sure to tell your friends. You can leave us a rating and review in your podcast player of choice or share an episode on social media. Speaking of social media, you can find Unspookable on Twitter and Instagram. Follow us for a peek behind the scenes and for updates on the show. Unspookable is part of the Soundsington Audio Network, committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to www.soundsingtonmedia.com. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.